I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. We're continuing our series on the life of Moses. Chapter 32 was filled with a lot of events. Moses had spent time up on Mount Sinai with God. While he, <clears throat> excuse me, while he was there, God wrote on two tablets of stone the Ten Commandments. He gave them to Moses, and while Moses was up on the mountain receiving those commandments, down in the valley, the Israelites had started worshiping a golden calf. God instructed Moses about what was taking place, and Moses interceded on behalf of the people, and then he went down to see for himself. It is interesting, there is a principle here that it's easy to pray for people who are a distance away, but when you actually get among them and see what they're doing, you might see things a little differently, and that was so for Moses. Moses became very angry. He took those stone tablets and he threw them down and they were smashed on the rocks. He took the calf that they had made. It says that uh, he burned it in fire, ground it to powder, cast it upon the water, and he made the people drink it, demonstrating that the best end for the God they had created would come out in the troughs where their um, wastes would be. He confronted Aaron and told the people to make a decision and some lined up with him and some did not. The vast majority of the people said they would be on the side of God, but 3,000 men were killed. They said clearly they would not be on the side of God. So then we come to chapter 33. And we're going to read verses 1 through 7, and then we'll back up a little bit and study a couple of the verses in particular. Exodus 33, 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the <clears throat> Hivite, and the Jebusite, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard these grave tidings, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments and or stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. The heart 
of the story we have just read is described in verses 2 and 3. So we'll focus on them for just a moment. Verse 2 says, this is quoting God, and I will send my angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now, sometimes when you read in the Bible, my angel, when it's capitalized, is referring to Jesus himself. He is called the angel of the Lord sometimes in the Old Testament. But that's, though it's capitalized in the New King James Version, it is not capitalized in other versions. And many translators say, this is not Jesus that is being referred to. The NIV says, my angel, as is the case in New American Standard Bible, King James, excuse me, I said it wrong. In the NIV, New American Standard Bible, King James Version, and the Amplified Version, it says, an angel, A-N-A-N-G-E-L, not my angel. And so God said, I will send an angel, and that angel will lead you. The angel will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then God goes on in his conversation in verse 3. He says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, this is an interesting verse, and one worthy of some time. Do you notice it says, go up. I will not go with you, lest I consume you on the way. Now, we get a little bit of insight when we look at the New International Version's translation. It says, lest, or it doesn't say lest, but it says, I might destroy you on the way. I might destroy you on the way. God is saying to Moses, I'm going to send an angel. That angel will lead you into the promised land. That angel will rid the promised land of all the enemies that you'll have, and you'll be there. But God says he will not go. He will not go because the people are stubborn. And God is saying, if I go with him, I might destroy them along the way. Well, what is being said here? It's important for us to understand this, or we could have a... mm, misunderstanding of what God is like and what is happening here. Let's put a marker here in in our Bibles, and let's go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we'll come back to Exodus in a moment. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, and here in chapter 8, we're going to look at two verses, verses 6 and 7. The Apostle Paul says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Now, carnally minded, what what does that mean? The New International Version calls it the mind of sinful man. 
The New American Standard Bible translates it, the mindset on the flesh. The Amplified Version says, the mind of the flesh, which is sense and reason without the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that that mind is death. And here is how death is translated in the Amplified Version. Death that comprises all the miseries arising from sin, both here and hereafter. So the mind of flesh, which is sense and reason without the Holy Spirit, and death is that which comprises all the misery arising from sin, both here and in the hereafter. It goes on to say in verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That word enmity means hostile. And that's how it's translated in the NIV and also in the New American Standard Bible. So when we look at these two verses and we have our understanding of these words, here's the meaning. The natural mind of man is sinful and hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law. In fact, it cannot submit to God's law. That is the natural mind. So when we go back to Exodus 33, verse 3, with this understanding, this text begins to make sense. So let's go back to chapter 33. <clears throat> chapter 33 of Exodus, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stubborn people." The NIV again says, I might destroy you on the way. What is being said here? God has never changed. God will never change. He has never changed in the past. He will never change in the future. God is holy. He will not compromise with sin. He will not be in the presence of sin. And he's telling Moses, I am going to keep my promise to Abraham. I'll send an angel to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land, but I will not be going with you. The people are stubborn. The people are carnal. If they are in my presence, they will be destroyed. It's an act of mercy. If they're going to be that way, and I know they're likely to do it, God is saying, it's best I don't go. Because if I'm in their presence and they sin like this again, they're dead. He will not be in the presence of sin. Now, we go on reading in chapter 33, and we discover Moses' response to what God has said. Verse 15. Then he, that's Moses, said to him, God. So Moses said to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Moses is saying, Look, God, don't want the promised land without you. If you're not going with us, we're not leaving. We're going to stay right here. We would rather be in the wilderness where you are than in a goodly land where you are not. 
It's an important description of a person who has learned to care about the Lord. But verse 15, as powerful as it is, really doesn't have its impact upon us yet until we study the verses coming just before it. And that gives us the context. So let's look at verse 12, chapter 33, verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now Moses is being very honest with God here. He's laying out his heart to the Lord. And he's saying, you know, Lord, you tell me to bring up this people, but you haven't told me who this angel is or how that's all going to work. You say the angel will go before us. But I don't understand that. I don't really get it. And then he goes on to say, you say that you know me, so you know the angst I'm in, you know everything about me, you know my name, and that means character in this situation, and you say that I found grace in your sight. You say all that to me, but this is extremely unclear to me. I don't understand it. I'm not getting this. And he continues in his prayer. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight. Now, folks, this is a fantastic prayer. This is a prayer that, or a verse you might want to circle and underline in your Bible as a prayer to pray to God. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way. Show me your way, Lord. What is your way? What is the path you want me to be on? If you will show that to me by your grace, I will walk on that path by your grace. It goes on. That I may know you. Jesus would come along and say, this is eternal life, that they might know God. So Moses is saying, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way, that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. That is saying that I will know I've found grace in your sight, but it doesn't end there. He says, and consider that this nation is your people. It's like he's saying, God, we've had this conversation before. You tried to pawn them off on me when we were in the mount together, and I said, no, they're yours. They're yours. Look, God, if indeed I have found grace in your sight, show me your way. Make yourself known to me. Let me know your grace. And please consider that these people are your people. In verse 14, the Lord responds, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Now that's a beautiful response, but it's not what Moses asked for. The you there is singular in both instances. God is saying, Moses, I'm going to go with you. 
And I will give you that promised land. I will give you the rest that everyone else has been promised. And that's the rest that is spoken of in Hebrews that the people did not enter into because of unbelief. Okay, Moses, if you want to go, I'm with you. And I'll go with you. Now, I want to ask you a question. If God said to you, <clears throat> I'm going to give you an angel that will go before you to prepare you the way before you, that angel will take your enemies out, and you'll be established in a good land and have a wonderful retirement. How many of you would say, Oh, that's a good deal? I would. No. Moses said, if you're not going to be there, I don't care how many angels are going to be there. And then, <clears throat> so God says, all right, Moses, tell you what, I'll go with you. You and I will go. And I'm, when I read this, I thought, my, how wonderful if God would say, I am with you, and you are with me, and we've got a future that's fantastic. Don't worry about anybody else. Moses isn't going to be happy. Moses has got something going on in his heart that is becoming like Jesus. And it is in this context that Moses says in verse 15 to the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us from here. The whole thing is about us, Lord. There are three million people besides me. Me being saved is not enough. Moses is praying for the other people. Moses is moved with compassion for the other people. An angel's not good enough. Then God in his life personally is not good enough. There are three million other people. And what this is a living illustration of is the heart of someone who has been forgiven by God. You see, when we come to the Lord and we embrace him and Christ becomes our Savior and we're convicted of our sin and we repent of our sin and we see how sinful we are in comparison with Jesus and we begin to understand the capacities for sin that lie within us and we recognize he's forgiven all this. Then I can forgive you. The people who cannot forgive another human being are people who have not experienced the forgiveness of God. Though someone may express their sin more fully than me, we are all sinners. Do you get that? We all need grace. We all need forgiveness. And Moses is saying, God, these people worship the golden calf. That's wrong. I know that. You know that. They know that now. They drank the thing. Many of them are sorry that it happened. 
And yes, they're stiff-necked. Yes, they're carnal. But I killed a man with my bare hands, buried him in the sand, thinking I was doing you service, and you forgave me. Now will you forgive them? And will you work with them and not give up on them? And the end result is God goes with them. So I look at this story, and it gets my mind thinking, well, what's in this story for us? Moses prayed for the people, and this isn't the first time he prayed for them, and it won't be the last time he prays for them. And I got thinking, do you remember the story of Abraham? He's sitting in his tent in the afternoon, and three men come walking down the road, one is Jesus and the other two are angels. And they have a nice dinner together and they're told that a baby will be born in their household within the next year. Sarah laughs and we have all that story. But towards the end of that story, we find out why Jesus and the angels are there. Jesus says, I've come down to look at Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plain, because I'm going to judge them. What does Abraham do? begins praying, Lord, if there's 50 righteous, will you still do that? He keeps working down, working down, working down until he figures he's at the bottom of the threshold. And each time the Lord said to him, no, I won't. No, I won't. I won't. If there's 50, if there's 40, if there's 30, 20, 10, I won't do it. Abraham was moving the hand of God on behalf of other people. Daniel, law goes throughout the land. Anybody who prays to any God or anything other than the king will be cast alive into the lion's den. What does Daniel do? Opens his window towards Jerusalem and prays. For who? His people. He's praying for his people. Jesus, let's turn to John 17. Jesus comes along. He is about to be crucified. This prayer that he prays in John 17 is on Thursday night. We know the prayer he prayed, take this cup away from me, and we, we consider that wonderful. He also prayed this prayer that night. John 17, we're looking at two verses of, of the prayer of Jesus. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He prayed for those men who were following him, and he prayed for everyone who would believe through their word. That word is recorded here, and here we are today. Jesus was praying for us. So I think to myself, I am struck with the magnitude of the importance of praying for other people. Now, we talked about carnal, this sinful flesh, it's called in some versions of the Bible. Do you know it's possible to be a church member and on some level to be a believer and still be carnal? 
The Bible says that, shocking as it can be. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is writing to the believers, the church at Corinth. And he says this to them. 1 Corinthians 3, 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able. They're there, they're hearing, and he's got so much to give them, but they're not able. Why? Because they are carnal. The carnal mind is at enmity with God and cannot be subject to God or his commandments. Have you ever had the conversation with somebody and they said, well, I believe ultimately when it's all over, everybody's going to be in heaven and we'll all just be happy there. Listen. The carnal mind cannot be subject to the law of God. It has to change. God isn't going to change. We have to change. That's what salvation is all about. Do you realize that if I hated God and I was in his presence, that would be hell? That would not be heaven. And so let's dismiss that as fanciful nonsense. Not everybody's going to be saved. People who are changed are going to be saved. But note this, there are people in church who are called carnal. And so that made me think. You've got Moses, Abraham, Daniel, and Jesus praying for other people. So what about my prayers? If I put the categories of things that could be prayed for, in my life, I'm going to confess to you the number one thing I pray for is Jerry. It's me. And that made me think, is it possible to be carnal in my prayers? Yes, Lord, I want to follow you, and, and I want you to help me overcome this, help me overcome that, help me to be this, help me to be that, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me, me, me. Moses said, it's not about me. There's three million people that he was concerned about. And then I got thinking, okay, well, what other category is in my prayer? Well, family, a few of my friends. Hey, let's be honest. There's a lot we take for granted in life. Someone's in the church, sick or hurting. I hear about it. I pray for them. But would God look down at me and say, that man's got it. He's got it. 
Or would God want me, and maybe you, to have a little different perspective when it comes to praying? What if when we went on our walk in the evening or in the morning, we were praying for every house on the street? Bless them, bless them, help them, help them. I know there's an illness there. What if we were doing that? What if we were praying for the church? There's eight things we've asked you to pray for for the church. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many of you do that. How many of you would be inclined if we offered you a church directory to pray for five families a day? What about our community? You know, you, you can sense, I'm sure, from comments I've made from time to time, that I'm not really excited about our government. I don't like the direction of our government. But I've been convicted this week, instead of grousing about it, I ought to pray for those people. Pray for our community, pray for our country. Do you remember some of you were with me 13 and a half years ago when we started this journey? I stood up the first couple Sabbaths and announced, we are praying that God will use our congregation to win one billion souls to the Lord before he returns. And I said, the reason we're capping it at one billion is so the other churches can have some action too. I've been convicted this week. It's been a long time since I prayed for a billion souls. In fact, I'm going to confess to you. In discouragement, I lowered the number to a million. But I'm going to ask you today to have a bigger prayer along with me. Why not a billion souls, one through your ministries. Why not? We serve a big God, don't we? And doesn't he want the world to be saved? Don't you sense he's wanting to do something? Why not with us? Why not now? And why not us? So I think about all these things and I came up with this sentence. You tell me what you think about it. Could it be that prayers that are all about us are actually all about us? And I'm convicted. My prayer life has got to be more. Yes, I need to continue communicating to God about my needs and concerns and sins I need to overcome and ask for forgiveness for. Yes, I need to pray for my family. Yes, I need to do all of that. But I need to have this in my heart, and that is this. God, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Don't take us to heaven yet, Lord. We haven't prayed enough. 
Don't take us up from here until we have prayed this community to Christ. Don't take us up from here until we have pleaded with you for souls to be one for eternity through Christ. And so I have a question for you today. It's a simple one. Are you willing to ask God to give you a heart of praying for others. I'm talking about big prayers for others. And if you want God to give you a heart to do that, and you want to tell Him you want a heart to do that, I'm going to invite you to stand. And while we're standing, before I pray for you, I'll remind you of one thing. Moses was one man praying for three million. What would it be like if a thousand of us were praying like Moses prayed? A thousand of us praying like Daniel prayed. A thousand of us praying like Abraham prayed. A thousand of us entering into the heart of Jesus and praying like Jesus prayed. What could happen? What could happen to us? What could happen to our families? What could happen to our community, to our nation, and to the world? Father in heaven, we are standing here under conviction from your Holy Spirit. We want to be men and women who pray. And we want to pray big prayers, Lord. We, we want people to be saved. We pray for our neighborhoods. We pray for our community. We pray for our nation and the world, Lord. We pray that you will use us to win a billion souls before you return. And Lord, do not take us up from here until we have prayed like that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.